So there's one time uh, in seminary that we had a preaching class, and there was a speech expert uh, who came in, and he was giving us tips and tricks on how to be a good public speaker, and I think that's quite interesting because a lot of times, you know, that's something that I struggle with. And he asked the question, so guys, what do you think is the most important part of public speaking? Uh, what do you need to work on? Now, some people would say eye contact. Some people would say uh, just speaking clearly. But what he said was introduction is so important because most listeners decide whether or not they're going to listen to that message in the first three minutes. So if you can't you know, make things interesting for them, if you can't provide something that they care about, if you can't draw your audience in, then basically you're not going to make a difference in the rest of your time because they're going to be gone, they're going to be uninterested in what you have to say. And that's why, uh, not just in speaking, but when you're writing too, right, your introduction is so important. How often have you picked up a book, actually bought a book just based on its introduction? You read the introduction, it's like great, amazing. You feel like this is going to change my life. And the more and more you read the book, about you get to page 100, it's like, okay, wait, I feel like this is kind of like what I already know. And so it's always like the beginning that's really great. And it's because they're trying to draw you in as the audience. Now, someone didn't give this memo, this tip to Matthew, because Matthew is the first gospel writer in the New Testament. He's starting off the story of Jesus. Like up to this point, it's been Old Testament, like a lot of hard history. And finally, we get to the story of Jesus. Like this is the most amazing story in the entire world. And what does he do? He gives you a bunch of names. A list of names that really, like us living in the 21st century, it's, it's just boring. This is one of those sections, like when you are reading the Bible, it's like, okay, let me just glance over this. Uh, let me just skip this so that I can get to the good stuff. Uh, but what I want to communicate this morning is that there's actually a lot of good stuff in this genealogy of Jesus. And we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God. It says in 2 Timothy 3:16, it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, it's able to make every man complete, ready for every good work. In other words, every scripture, every piece of God's word is 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 inspired. It is given by God. Yes, God used human writers to communicate to his people, but also ultimately he's speaking through these words. He's the one who's, who's, who's coordinating all these different things uh, in the Bible. And so he intended this beginning. He wants us to know the beginning of Jesus in such a way through the genealogy. And so because this is the inspired word of God, this is something that's necessary and profitable for us as believers, especially as this is the beginning of Jesus' story. So let's dive into this story together. Um, in verse 1, it says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now in one verse, Matthew basically summarizes the entire history of the Old Testament. Well, um, so there's a couple of things that we can kind of, kind of dive into. But the first thing that we notice is that this is the book of genealogy. Notice that the story of Jesus does not begin with once upon a time. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, he mentions this, and he says that this is significant because it tells you that the story of Jesus is not a fairy tale. It's not a man-made legend that developed over time. The story of Jesus is actually rooted in history, and that's a big, big deal. We're not just talking about a story that was made up so that people can learn 
valuable lessons so that people can make moral choices. No, we're talking about a real human being, a person who lived in real time at a very real place. This is not just an ancient myth. This is actually history. And how often do you hear sometimes when people don't believe in the Bible, they would say, well, how can you believe in such ancient writing? Like, how can you believe in a story that doesn't make any sense? Like something that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. Well, my answer would be, I just appreciate history, right? It's not that this is a fairy tale. This is rooted in history. And that makes a world of a difference on how you approach this word. Because if Jesus was real, that means his teaching was real. And if his teaching was real, that means you have to take this with some weight, like it's not just something that you can, you can glance over. It's something that's there rooted in history. It's something that is good news. When we say the word good news, that's a fact, something that actually happened. We're not just talking about a good idea. We're not just talking about a good, good thought that we want to present to other people. We're talking about good news, something that actually happened in history. So Jesus' his story from the very beginning, the Bible communicates that it is rooted in history, but it takes things a bit further because his story is not just rooted in history. His story is the center of history. Jesus' story is the center of history. That's the first point I want to make in today's passage. Jesus' story is the center of history. Now, for 21st century uh, Christians living in America, for us, this is just a long boring list of names. Uh, When Jonathan was reading uh, this list, He did an amazing job, but for most of us, what we were thinking is, okay, is he going to make it to the end? Is he going to pronounce, like, all these words correctly? Like, like, when he's reading off these names, it's just a bunch of names. Like, that's how, like, we approach it. That's how we kind of connect with it. It's just these random names that are impossible to pronounce. But for the audience that was receiving this, this letter, this book, initially, which was primarily Jewish audience, for those people, this this is a list of history. Like, beyond each name, there's a story that's included in the Old Testament. You start off with Abraham, the father of faith, how he was called in Genesis 12 to to go to this place, that through him, that he was... God was going to form a great nation. And you see the story of Isaac, the story of Jacob, the story of Joseph, all these different names, the forefathers, the beginning of the nation of Israel. And then you jump down to, to verse 5, and then you see the first uh, woman who's mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, Rahab, which reminds you the story of Joshua, how Joshua was leading God's people to conquer um, the, the promised land, to go and settle into the promised land. You go to verse 5 again, Ruth, who was a, a figure uh, who lived in the time of judges. When people were, were living this life of sin, it was through Ruth, her faith, that God continued the promise of salvation because later on through the line of Ruth comes who? King David. And then you have a list of kings starting from from verse 6. A lot of them uh, um, that you might recognize, David, Solomon, and then the list goes on and on and on. And then from verse 12, you have a long list of people who lived during the deportation to Babylon. And And Matthew summarizes this entire genealogy in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So three sections. 
Abraham to David, that's basically Genesis, all the way to, to Ruth, and then you have 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Chronicles, Kings that are all about the, the kingdom, the kings of Israel, which is basically from David all the way to the deportation of Babylon, and then the rest of the story, you have, you have Ezra, Nehemiah, you have all the prophets that were written during the exile and also after the exile. In other words, when, when the Jewish audience, when they're reading this list, it's like a flashback of their entire history. And Matthew is reminding this, this audience as they're recounting all that happened in their, in their nation that at the end of the day, all these figures lead up to who? Jesus, the Christ. So Jesus is not just rooted in history. His story is not just part of history. It's actually the center of history. But the second thing I want to mention is this. The second point is Jesus is the promised Savior. He is the promised Savior. And I get that from the name Jesus. Um, Jesus literally means um, God saves, Yahweh saves. It comes from the Old Testament name Joshua. Just like Joshua was the leader that was called to, to lead God's people into the promised land, Jesus, he's called to lead sinful people into eternal life. We see in Matthew one twenty one. When the angel appears in a vision uh, to, to Joseph, uh, this is what he says. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the reason why Jesus was named Jesus is because of, of the plan that God had to save his people, to save this, this, this broken, fallen world through this person called Jesus. So Jesus, he's the savior, he's the center of history, but he's not just a savior, but he's actually the promised savior, the promised Messiah. I get that from the word Christ, which literally is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one, the promised one. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see promise after promise about this figure that's going to come and restore the nation of Israel. Especially in Isaiah 61, it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And, and the Lord has anointed me. Why? So that I can bring good news to the poor. So that I can bind up the brokenhearted. So that I can proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and proclaim his judgment. The work of the Messiah was prophesied all throughout scripture. And finally, after centuries, we see in Matthew's genealogy that Jesus has arrived. That he is him. Jesus is it. Like he's the one. That he's the promised savior that he's the one that was talked about all throughout history. And the third thing that we see is this, Jesus, he is the center of history, he's the promised savior, and he is the ultimate king. Jesus is the ultimate king. Look at verse one again, we're still at verse one. It says this, um, the book of genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the very next thing that we see is Jesus Yes, he is the Christ. By the way, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's the title that he holds, uh, which means Messiah. But the next uh, title that he has is he is the son of David. And that is so, so significant because the Messiah was always promised to come from the line of David. Now, if you are like a student of the Old Testament, if you did your research, you would find something funky about Matthew's genealogy. Because Matthew says where there's 14 generations between Abraham and David, 14 generations between um, David and the deportation of the Babylonians, uh, 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 and, and, and so all that. But if you 
actually go back and look at the genealogy in the Old Testament, you're going to notice that there's some names that are missing. Like, there are more than 14 generations that exist between Abraham and David. There's more that exists between uh, uh, David and, and the people who were exiled to Babylon. And so why does Matthew, a tax collector, by the way, so he's really good with numbers, why would he make this decision? I don't think it's, it's by fault that he made a mistake. I don't think he's purposely, you know, you know uh, trying to render this, this, this genealogy so that it's, it's pleasant. Actually, when you see the word father, that could be translated in two ways. It can be father. It could be also ancestor, too. And so when it says the father of someone, the father of someone, it could mean that literally it's his uh, uh, biological father, but it could also mean that this person is their ancestor. So just linguistically, there's not really a big issue. But why does Matthew stick with the number 14? Why is he so obsessed with the number 14? Okay, so this is more like a tangent. Because I know some people are going to want to know this. Uh, like, there's different theories on this. Uh, I think the best theory is that in the Hebrew alphabet, the language, they don't have a separate uh, 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 numerical system. And so uh, a lot of ancient, uh, ancient languages, they did this. They would use the alphabet also as a number as well. So with every Hebrew alphabet, there's 22 Hebrew alphabets. With every alphabet, there's a number that's associated. And so with a name, there's a numerical value that you can place, and when you look at the name Hebrew name David, the numerical value, if you add up all the, the, the numbers that are associated with the, the alphabets that are in the name David, it comes out to the number 14. And so it's pointing to the fact that, again, this person, this Messiah, Jesus, who is the Christ, he's coming from the line of David. He is deeply associated with the person of David. And why is that significant? It's because the promise that was made in 2 Samuel 7, uh, where after David, he, 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 he builds a house uh, and, and he, he, he is, is wanting to do more for God. God says, no, 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 don't worry. Your descendant is going to build a house for me. But in 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13, he makes a prophecy to David. Uh, it says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, this sounds a lot like Solomon, but in verse 13, notice this. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's going to be a guy who establishes a house for the name of, the name of God, but God says, I'll establish his kingdom forever. And that's a big deal. Because we know that, yes, directly it could be a reference to Solomon, but ultimately this is a reference to Jesus Christ because he's the one who's going to bring the ultimate kingdom that is going to last forever. If this was simply pointing to Solomon, then this prophecy is actually not true because Solomon, we know his kingdom actually failed. His kingdom was divided. His kingdom did not last. And a lot of the prophets noticed this. That's why in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, the, the prophet Isaiah says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting father and prince of peace. Notice this, of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah is writing this hundreds and hundreds of years after King David and Solomon have died. And yet he's saying that the throne of David and his kingdom will be established forever and ever. So earthly, this does not make sense because he's talking about dead people. But this makes absolute sense if you understand that the prophecy in 2 Samuel 7 was actually pointing to Jesus and Ezekiel 37. Now, I didn't have enough time to go to all the Old Testament references, but Ezekiel 37, 24 and 25. This is one of the darkest moments in history of Israel. This is when the people are in exile. Like, there's no hope. Like, they're wondering, when will God fulfill his promise? And this is the word that comes to the prophet Ezekiel. My servant, David, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to, to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Again, David has been long gone, and yet the Bible says there's going to be one like David who comes and establishes an everlasting kingdom. And what are the children going to do? They're going to follow this David figure as a, as a shepherd. They're going to obey all his statutes. So we see that by the title, the son of David, Matthew is pointing the fact that Jesus is the ultimate king, that he's the one that we've been waiting for. But it gets even better because he could have stopped right there like that in itself is such a powerful statement showing us how the line of David connects to Jesus. But he adds another thing. He says, but he's not just the son of David, but he's the son of Abraham. It says in Genesis 12, this is when God calls Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to lead you to a land. But notice in verse 3, it says this. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the promise is this. Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your offsprings tremendously. And the result is that the nations, the earth, will be blessed. In the, old, in the New Testament, when this verse is quoted, um, it's transliterated into the word nation. So the nations, the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 17, God reminds Abraham of this promise. This is what he says. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. This is, by the way, still when Abraham did not have a son. No longer shall you, your name, be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham, but Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's so interesting. It doesn't say that Abraham is just a father of one nation. It says that Abraham is the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. The kings shall come from you. So even before there was a kingdom, even before the Israelites wanted a king, God says, kings are going to come from you. Like, that's an incredible promise that is made. And so what we see is this, the fact that Jesus is the son of, of David, but also the son of Abraham reminds us that Jesus came not just to be the king, also to be the ultimate blessing 
Jesus came to be the ultimate blessing. He is the ultimate gift of God. Why? Because in that statement, the earth shall be blessed, guess who's in that statement? You and I. Like we're in that statement. Jesus is the ultimate blessing that we can receive. So Jesus is the center of history. He is the promised Savior. Jesus also is the ultimate king, and he is the ultimate blessing, the best gift that we can receive. And now all this information is great. We learned about who Jesus is. But there's another question that we have to ask. So why does this matter for us? Why did Jesus come in such a way? What is he trying to accomplish? And I just have two things. The first one is this. The genealogy of Jesus shows us that God saves us solely based on his sovereign grace. God saves us solely based on his sovereign grace. Now, this genealogy, if you look at some names, uh, look at their stories, yeah, some people did some okay stuff. But even the big names, like you think about Abraham, right? He's the father of faith, and yet what did he do? He lied that his wife was his sister, also that he, he couldn't wait, and so he, uh, he committed polygamy. You think about King David, that big name, that he committed adultery and murder. Like, the list goes on and on. Those are, like, the big names. And then you have, like, four women who appear in this, this list. And you might think, okay, women might be different. But the first woman is Tamar, who committed incest with... Um, uh, and, 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 and you, the second woman uh, is Rahab, who was a prostitute. The third woman is Ruth, who was a Moabite, who was not a non-Jew, uh, a Moabite, who their culture was deeply into sexual immorality. And then lastly, you have the wife of Uriah. It's like Bathsheba, but her name is not even mentioned to remind you what happened with David and Bathsheba. Like the, Uriah, the guy that was killed because of the sin of David. And so you have name after name after name that, that, that their lives are full of sinfulness, brokenness. And, and you look at this list, and it's not an impressive list. And the point is this. From this list full of sinners comes the Savior, Jesus Christ. Why is that so important? It shows us that God's plan for salvation is not dependent on the goodness of people, it's dependent on the sovereign grace of our Lord. Like, the people received Jesus not because they did everything right, correctly, because they lived an incredible life that deserved the ultimate gift, Jesus. Despite their brokenness, despite their sin, somehow, because of the sovereign grace of Jesus, uh, of, of God, God sends Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. So, we can't boast in our salvation. Like, no one can say, yes, I deserve God. No, you look at this list and you are reminded of the history of sinful, broken people. And yet you are reminded of the patience of our God. Some people might say, God, what took you so long to bring Jesus on the scenes? And you, you, you forget all that happened in the Old Testament. What took God so long? It's not that God was on a break. He was working in people. He was working through people, like you have a history of people being called by God, being led by God, and what was the result? People, instead of choosing God, they rebelled against God. They denied God. They worked against God. They forgot about God. And so there was 400 years of silence in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And But finally, when Jesus he comes on the scene, 
the very first thing that is mentioned is God is still at work, that his plan for salvation has not ended because it's not based on the work of people. It's based on his sovereign grace. And the last thing I want us to see is this. Why does God remind us of this genealogy? He wants to remind us that, yes, God saves people through his sovereign grace, but God saves people through, for the spread of his glory. That's the, that's the next thing. He saves us for the spread of his glory. Um, in Genesis 22, this is after Abraham sacrifices his son Isaac. Well, he almost sacrificed his son Isaac, and then God stops him in the middle, and then God sends an angel, and it says in Genesis 22, verse 16, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And listen to verse 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. And your offspring, this offspring, all the nations, not just some people, all the nations will be blessed. You think about the people that are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. It's not that it's full of sinful people. It's full of Gentiles as well. Like you have, again, yeah, uh, Ruth, Rahab, who are, who are Gentiles, uh, people who are considered outcasts in society, people who are considered outside of the covenant blessing of, of, of God, and yet God calls them. Why? So that through the offspring to Jesus Christ that the nations might be blessed. It's not just to bless you, but it's to bless the nations through you. And this reminds us that on this Christmas day, we have a good message, but also we have a mission that we need to accomplish. Because this mission, in the Gospel of Matthew, the very beginning, it declares that the king has arrived. And what's the last scene in the Gospel of Matthew? The king sends out his servants to do what? To make disciples of all nations. Why? For the glory of his name, for the good of the people. God sends people out with the message of Christmas, the good news of Christmas, to restore joy and hope and peace in a broken world. As our Savior, Jesus restores our joy because there is a way now for us to have fellowship with God. As our King, Jesus restores peace. Why? Because he frees us from the enemies and he frees us from the the condemnation of sin. And Jesus is our ultimate hope. Why? If he came once and he says he's going to come again, you can bank on his promise. That gives us hope for the future. So that's why Christmas is good news. And the genealogy of Jesus points us to the incredible sovereign grace of God and our need for a Savior. Amen? Let's pray.